Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast, History 102. In this episode, we do China after World War II. So China represented this third way, or it wanted to represent this third way. It wasn't going to be Western industrialization. It wasn't going to be the USSR. It was going to be uh, Chinese modernization. The communists win the Civil War. Uh, after World War II, uh, China immediately descends into civil war, and the communists win by 1949. The nationalists, the people who supported Chiang Kai-shek, the previous government, the Republican government, flee to Taiwan with the help of the United States. Uh, they were essentially corrupt and incompetent, and that is what signaled their defeat. In the end, they they were just bad at government. So China goes to the USSR for friends, which instigates Joe McCarthy's 1952, this is in the United States, The Who Lost China. And here's the book, The Man Who Lost China, how Chiang Kai-shek was the, the guy who lost China. Who lost China? China is a country of 600 million people, and now they're all communists. And Joe McCarthy will go uh, into a whole right-wing conspiracy thing. He gets a lot of power because uh, the news was willing to put him on TV. They were willing to uh, publish his his completely, he had no evidence whatsoever, but he said liberal commies were in the U.S. government and they were betraying America. He threw conspiracies. Even the army is in on it. And that's kind of where he went too far. And the most famous is his hearings that were on television, watched by like a third of the nation, where the one of the generals says, you know, have you no shame? You know, this is ridiculous. But it was, when we talk about Conspiracy theories and the right in America and the conservatives in America. This is a part of what Richard, historian Richard Hofstetter called the paranoid style of American politics. Conspiracy theories have always appealed to Americans and they appeal to both the left and the right. But something about conservative culture in the Cold War made it especially susceptible. So that today we're dealing with that problem with um, the vaccines for COVID. Oh, there's microchips in them so Bill Gates can, can follow you around. Dude, you're carrying a cell phone with you. You are literally broadcasting where you are all the time. And you're worried about a microchip that has no battery power. That, has, that How does it even communicate with anything? But that's the world we live in. And the left had anti-vax too. Don't get me wrong. The, the whole anti-vaccination started on the left. With uh, we're more worried about our kids getting autism than dying of measles. Well, the reason they weren't dying of measles was because everybody else was getting the vaccination. So they were just freeloaders. So there's there's conspiracy theories on both the left and the right. But this, the Cold War made it because I guess communism was a leftist um, political system, made the conspiracy theories much more prevalent to um, conservative voters than they had previously. 
Okay, so Mao Zedong is in charge. He has won. Mao. Mao has won. And now he's going to make China. He's got China, and China has been in a bad place. And we've talked about China being in a bad place. It had had civil wars in the Taiping Rebellion. It had civil wars in the Boxer Rebellion. It had, it had, it had been assaulted in World War II. And terrible, horrible things had happened to it, to its people. Maybe 100 million people died between 1800 and 1950. Maybe more. So Mao has this agrarian, poor country, and he's going to make it modern. And that is the great leap forward. It's kind of like Stalin's 10-year plan. Stalin had gave a speech, and I, remember, I used to read it in class, um, and it was the, we're always behind. Russia is always behind, and we're always abused. And today is 1931, and we have like 10 years. We have to catch up in 10 years, otherwise something bad is going to happen. And almost exactly to that 10 years was the Nazi invasion. So he was kind of right. Mao is thinking the same way. We need to transform transform China from a poor industrial from a agrarian and poor country into an industrial country and we have to do it as quickly as possible because if we don't the west is going to do something to us. So so from 49 to 58 he's using the Russians. But the de-Stalinization that happened in 53 upset Mao. Mao likes Stalin. And so he says, we don't need the Europeans. We don't need the West. He kicks out the USSR. They're experts because of the USSR rebuke of Stalin. And the idea was Mao was more communist. China was going to be more communist than the USSR. And so what happened is collectivization of farms, just like Stalin, which led to mass starvation, just like Stalin, the corruption of the bureaucracy, because you got punishment if you missed your targets. The, the targets for what these farms had to produce came from up above. They said, this farm should produce 100 tons of rice. Well, if it didn't produce 100 tons of rice, the bureaucrats got in trouble. And so they didn't want to get in trouble. So what they did was just make up numbers. Or... They bought rice from other farms and then moved it to their farm and claimed that they now had 100 tons when really it was 30 tons plus 70 tons from all kinds of other places. And in the end, nobody in charge knew what China was actually producing, and that equaled a disaster. Plus, you had forced industrialization without training, which equaled massive failure. The, the most famous of this, the one that, that Westerners hardy, hardy, har, is the backyard blast furnaces. The idea that we have 600 million peasants, we can make more. We can make more steel than the whole West, and we'll do it by every man will have a furnace in his backyard. Well, it's not hard enough. It can't create steel. So he took metal, they melted it down, it was pig iron and junk, and it was useless. The only place that made any kind of steel was the places that traditionally made steel. And they looked at this and went, this is stupid. We're going to get a blast furnace, we're going to get coke, we're going to get all the kind of things you need, and we're going to make real effing steel. And they did. But this is the idea that the, the government was saying, Mao was saying, we're going to do this, it's going to be great. And nobody had any idea what they were doing. It was government of fools. 
Mao was a great military leader, and he was a great personality. Don't get me wrong. He's one of you. He's not a great guy, but he's one of the great personality leaders of the 20th century. And yet his leadership in terms of economics was a catastrophe for peasants and for China. You have 20 million people probably starve, maybe more. Nobody really knows. What I do know is when my parents were growing up, their, their parents told them, eat your food. There's children starving in China. So Chinese starvation was so bad in the mid, in the mid 50s and the early 60s that American parents in the suburbs were telling their kids, eat your food because children are starving in China the way my parents would tell me in the late 70s and early 80s, eat your food. There's children starving in Africa. So it wasn't a secret that China was falling apart. So after that, there's people who go, well, maybe Mao doesn't really know what he's doing. Mao's getting old. He's, he was a military leader. He's, you know, maybe now that we're in charge, we need a new set of uh, skills. And they start to, there's a fight within the party to push Mao out of power. Well, Mao doesn't want to get out of power. Mao has been in charge for a long time. He wants to stay in charge. And so he launches the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976. And this is a fight within the party for Mao to keep control versus this newer generation. And look at the imagery that we have underneath. We got the little red book, Mao, and the people following, not following him, they're coming out of him, right? With his, with the book, with the little red book. We've got, look at this man in the middle, how healthy he is. You've got the nuclear bomb behind him. That's not bad. That's good because China is going to be a nuclear power like the U.S. and the USSR, like Britain and France. But look at how healthy he is. Look at those muscular forearms. This is not a starving guy. And then we have a photograph. Mao in his traditional pose. And the people reading out of the little red book. But notice how skinny they are. They, none of them, they're all girls also. They're all women. And none of them look like the people in the images who are all ready-cheeked and healthy and large and muscular. And that's not those people. The people who are the parents of our current generation of Chinese students. Of Chinese Americans. These are that, that generation. And so what is the Cultural Revolution? It is an attempt to destroy Western foreign cultural influence. To get rid of Western and foreign technology, education, music, literature, even Buddhism. Now, Buddhism is tough because Buddhism is the major religion in China. And it's been there for a thousand years, for more than a thousand years. But it was foreign. It came from India. It wasn't Chinese. And the idea was to make China for the Chinese. That we have been abused by the West, by the West culture, not just its economics, not just its military, but by its culture for too long. And the place that they set to destroy this place was, of course, as will always happen, the university system. Because you know what the university system does? It teaches multiple ideas. And so the idea was to destroy the university system, which teaches all these non-Mao ideas, that teaches the Western Enlightenment, that teaches the Renaissance, that teaches the philosophical ideas of Buddhism, but also Islam and Christianity. Why does it teach that stuff? Because you have to know it to be an educated person. 
But a dictatorship doesn't want educated people. It wants people to believe it. So you always go after the university system and try to get control of it. The second thing is you denounce of anyone who was not, quote, communist enough. So, so we have, remember we talked about the French Revolution, how it went liberal? That's what this is. This is the liberal um, of, the, of the Chinese Revolution. This is where it goes, who is a real communist? And the definition of a real communist keeps changing. This is exactly what happens in the French Revolution in the, in the terror, where they start cutting off the heads of not just the counter-revolutionaries, but of anybody who goes, well, maybe we shouldn't like destroy the university system. We've got a good one. And you go, wait, they're teaching all the they're teaching all that enlightenment, Western stuff. You are a Western lover. You're a European. You're a Europeanist. You're a colonialist. You're an imperialist. Now, here's there's a major problem with the destroying of the university system and the foreign ideas is communism is a Marxian idea. It comes from Europe. It is based on the Enlightenment, and you can see the problem. So that's where the Little Red Book comes in as a more, more pure Chinese version of communism than Marx. So you get purged from the party. You get purged from the economy. A million people are going to get executed. Maybe five to ten million people more starve. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, admits a hundred million people, quote, suffered. It is levels as if China suffered a civil war. That's what the Cultural Revolution did. It traumatized as if China went through this convulsion of a civil war. And remember, this is the late 60s and early 70s. This is the same time there's a cultural revolution going on in the United States with the youth generation and the anti-Vietnam War and civil rights. And at the same time, it's the Prague Spring. It is the summer in Paris. It's 1968 Paris. The same thing is going on in Europe as well. So these late 60s into these early 70s is this convulsion as one generation is attempting to take over power from an older generation and these forces of liberalism and conservatism are crashing into each other. And it's true even in a place that's as isolated as communist China. Three, they made students, intellectuals, and young people leave the cities. This is where kind of like old, old people are just the same, whether they're liberal or conservative. The idea is young people don't know how to be a real uh, American, French, Chinese. And the idea is they're too soft in the cities. They go to school and they, they go to Starbucks and they don't know real work. And so what happens is a deep population of the cities, the communization of the farms. This is what will happen in Cambodia. In Cambodia, they just weigh lace to the cities. They just depot, they take the guns and they force people out and they just make them walk into the jungle. The urban economy collapses, but also the farm economy collapses. Why? Because you took all these students, intellectuals, and young people from the cities, you put them on farms. They don't know how to farm. So they're just in the mud. They're just moving mud. They don't know what they're doing. And so the farm economy collapsed, which means starvation. But there was the idea that rural China was the real China. The real workers, the real Chinese, the real communists were rural, not urban. They were poor, not wealthy, not intellectual, not tied to international trade. 
that young people needed to learn real values. And you hear this all the time in America today. The amount of old people who tell me that we need government service for young people. Old people apparently don't have to do any government service. They don't have to join the military. They don't have to join the uh, fire brigades out west. Old people apparently can sit home and just complain about stuff. But young people have to take five years out of their lives to learn how to be an American, to learn sacrifice and quote unquote all kinds of other things. And so the idea is that young people need to learn real values. Instead of being wimpy and there's always this smell, there's always this whiff of being vaguely homosexual, overeducated losers. They're wimpy, gay, overeducated losers. They know a lot about stuff that has no practical uh, use. And the amount of old people today that I hear who say people don't need college today. They just need a good job. Like, do you know what these jobs require now? Have you been in the workforce? Like the businesses come to us, come to our college and say, we need you to educate people in these fields. And we're like, all right, let's do it. They're, they're, they need the people. They, the businesses know they need the educated people. But it's always this kind of too much education makes you a wimp, decadent, vaguely homosexual loser. And it's true in China as it is in America, as it is in Europe. I'm sure it was true. It's in, I mean, it's in the Bible. I mean, you know, the old generation always complains about the young. From, from the second story, Cain and Abel on. So you get the urban and rural divide in China. That's a divide we talked about in the United States. Despite the United States being capitalist and democratic, you're getting the same divide. You're getting an old and young divide that's going on at the same time in the United States and in Europe. And you're getting the original communists versus that next generation. The original communists who had won the world, had, had, had conquered China, had reunited it, and then effed it up in the great leap forward. I mean, there is no way to spin the great leap forward as a good thing. It is bad. It is a disaster for people living in China. And so the next generation had every, every right to say, okay, Grandpa, you won. You're great. Please retire and let us try to run the show. We can't, literally, we can't do worse. And so you hear people say this all the time. We need national service. We need young people to stop playing video games or sexting on Snapchat. We need 20-year-olds to go to Montana and learn to work in the national forest. It's never we need more people to get doctorates in education. Never. They never say that. So, so my point is that this is not just a communist thing. This is a generational divide that's going on in the Cultural Revolution. So the results of the Great Leap Forward plus the Cultural Revolution are a complete disaster for China. I already mentioned the eat all the food on your plate to starving children in China. That's the 1950s. You get the one China child policy in the 1980s. The idea that people can only have one child. And the reason why was children were eating up the economic gains. So you had to control the population. Why? Because if your economy is growing at 5%, that's great. But if your population is growing at 6%, you are actually getting 1% poorer per year because the people, the new people are eating, literally eating 
Because remember, children don't make any money for the first 18 years. So your children are literally eating your economic gains. Even though you're growing, you're getting poorer because you have two more people you have to feed, you have to house, you have to take care of, you have to provide welfare for, you have to educate, and that all costs money. So the children are expensive. Those of you who have children know this. And so the determination was, no, we're going to have one child. Now, that was devastating if you were a girl. China today is something like 200 million girls short. So people had boys. The idea was boys would take care of their parents. In America, it's different. In America, it's the opposite. America, it's girls take care of their, their mothers. Girls take care of their parents. In China, it's the son will take care of the parents. The son is your social security. Your son is your retirement. Your son will take care of you when you're old. So you get a large amount of infanticides, of little girls being either left or drowned. Um, and it's devastating. China, and, and today, it's, 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 China will get rich. China has gotten rich. And this dem- demographic problem is rearing its head. That it's unbalanced. Um, there are demographers that are saying China will become the largest sex slavery country in the world. That it will just import all of these women from Vietnam, from Philippines, from Cambodia, from Laos. They will import poor women and basically sell them as slaves in, into the, the male marriage market. Um, because it's just 200 million. I think it's 200 million. 20 million? I want to say it's 200, but that sounds like a lot, man. Even for 1.5 billion, 200 is a lot. But it's a large number of girls who should have been adult women who aren't. Because in most populations, it's 51%, 52%. In any healthy human population, it's 51% female. Modern China is more male than female. So something terrible happened. You have maybe 60 million dead. There are no official records in the archives. There's nothing telling you how bad it was. So there's no way of knowing. Or So you have fake history. The Great Leap Forward is a giant piece of fake history where things are just made up. There's no way, and maybe there are secret archives somewhere, but everybody had a reason to lie all the way up. The farm managers had a reason to lie about what was being produced. The regional managers had a lie, had a reason to lie about what was being collected. Everybody had a reason to lie about people dying. So... Even if there are official records, it's very possible they're completely useless. That you have a period of time in history that the records are just lies. They're just all of the official records are just lies. It's very possible. What you have is a ruination of a generation of government, science, education, economic growth specialists. The one child policy, children are eating up the economic gains. That means stop. The, but there's now a future cost. You have the destruction of Chinese art. Architecture, literature, it's ripped up by its roots because by 1960, all Chinese, uh, all modern art in China is going to be influenced by the West. There's no way it's not. It's influenced by the West everywhere else. Chinese universities are going to be worthless, essentially worthless for the next 50 years. They're just now getting back to, um, and in only in specialists, not in humanities, but in like engineering, in medicine, they're getting back to a reasonably high quality 
But for 50 years, like Chinese universities in the 80s are terrible. No, you know, no American is going to go to them. Um, 400,000 Chinese students come to the United States every year. It's their 35% of all international students in the United States are Chinese. If the Chinese university system was so good, they'd stay. Why would they come here and pay more money? Live in a foreign culture. So Chinese artists and students leave China to gain an advantage in education and working experience. Mao's death and the end of the Cultural Revolution in the mid-70s allowed for a victory of the liberals to start changes. And communism, as Mao envisioned it, is basically over by 1980. Certainly by 1985. The question is, what replaces it? And that brings us to 1989. Tiananmen Square... June 4th, though also known as the June 4th incidents in 1989, was a student-led protest for liberalization of politics. It starts in April. After the death of a reformer, this is kind of like Les Mis, the, the, the book and the play Les Mis, uh, which is based on a historical French revolt of 1830, 1832. Um, early in 1989, communist parties are collapsing. In April, Poland allowed for multiple parties, by the end of October or November, the, the, the Communist Party in um, East Germany has effectively lost its power. On May 19th, 1.2 million people showed up to join protesters. It's the same day that the Baltic states declared independence from the USSR. So if you're looking around the world, communism is collapsing all, all, all at once, everywhere. On June 1st, all live TV outside of China is cut off. On June 3rd, troops begin to enter Beijing, something that hadn't happened since the Civil War. And start, and they are accosted by civilians. And on June 4th, they begin arresting and shooting people, protesters, student protesters in Tiananmen Square. On June 5th, the wholesale massacre ensues as tanks come into the city and they start murdering people. June 5th, what the events of June 5th officially do not exist in China. They are not talked about. They do not officially exist. In July, Gorbachev says Europe, uh, communist parties can find their own way to socialism. The USSR will not invade Europe like it did in 56 and 68. Uh, it means Europe will be different than what is going on in China. In August, Eastern European refugees start streaming into the West. In November, the Berlin Wall is opened and begins to be torn down. Two years later, or a year and a half later, in the USSR, it dissolves and breaks up into 15 countries, which horrifies the Chinese Communist Party because that is exactly what they don't want to happen to China. China always breaks up. When one dynasty fails, when one governmental system fails, China collapses into parts, into pieces called the warring states. So the Chinese, especially conservatives of the Communist Party, are looking at this going, oh my God, we can't do this. this is what, what are they doing? We have to be better than they, which allows the liberals, now the conservatives murdered a whole lot of people. But they also knew they couldn't stay the same. The conservatives couldn't win. They had to change. 
the CCP was going to have to do some kind of reforms. And so liberals are going to win in the 90s because conservatives can't win. Because if they if conservatives stay where they are, like in the Soviet Union, it will collapse. China would collapse. And so for the CCP to stay in charge, you get massive reforms. Socialist capitalism. The idea is by by 1995, essentially communism is over in, in all but name. We have a form of socialist capitalism. We have privatization of public businesses. You get oligarchs and princes, the billionaire. Today, they're the billionaires, right? The little emperors. That's the new generation. You allow farmers to produce for people and then sell the extra. But the big thing was foreign businesses can build factories. Foreign businesses can come into China and start to build factories for export. They can use our cheap labor. And you will have labor peace. There will be no unions. The CCP will guarantee you your production goals. You need a factory, in a, you need a land in a village, they will clear the village. And they'll move all the people. They'll dam up the river for your hydroelectric power. They can do it because they're a dictatorship. And they will allow foreigners to sell to the Chinese market. So that Chinese people can get European goods, American goods. In 1980, and this is a huge change. In 1980, 80%, 88% of people lived in poverty on less than $2 a day. That's how devastating Mao's communism was. 88% of people in China lived in poverty. By, 19, by 2015, it's 2% are living in poverty. And by 2020, I think it's, it's all but eliminated. The idea of extreme poverty, of living on less than $2 a day. But, and this is where the CCP was smart, where they used their advantage of their population. Hey, you want to sell to our 1.5 billion people? You can, but you want to use our cheap labor that we will artificially keep at low wages because we can dictate what the minimum, what the wages are, what the maximum wages are? Okay, but foreign countries, companies, not really countries, companies are going to have to merge with a Chinese company. You just can't be a factory, a Nike factory. It has to be a Chinese company in China that, you're, that Nike is allied with, that merged with. That merger allows you to hand over, forces you to hand over your technology. The idea is for China to catch up basically by stealing technology. But it's not stealing because that's part of the deal. You're going to have to teach the Chinese how to make uh, an assembly line. You're going to teach them how to make leather patent shoes. You're going to teach them how to make this stuff. And there's no copyright laws that are going to be enforced. Like the Chinese company is just essentially going to steal your technology. And if you look at certain things, you see that they're essentially the same. I, I like, um, I grade, I'm a professor, I have fountain pens. And I, you can buy them on Amazon, and you can see the Chinese ones, and they're, they look exactly like a German or American. They look like a German LeMay or an American cross. I mean, exactly. They're probably made in the same factory as the cross. They just stamp on Moon Man on it or something, and, it's, and they sell it for $5. Whereas the LeMay is 40 bucks and the cross is 80 bucks. And he sell it for $5. So 
So what do people do? They buy the cheap one. It looks the same. It looks, I'm telling you, it is the same. It is pro- It is the same. It doesn't look just the same. It is the same. It's the same technology. It's made with 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 worse equipment. It's made with worse uh, quant, uh, quality assurances. It's made with cheaper materials, so it's lighter. It's not real metal. But it's essentially the same. And for five bucks, hey, you could buy eight of them. And so what all this does is the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, matters. It makes the winners and it steals from others. It allows for corruption at local levels. Local level guys are able to choose which companies get to merge with the Westerners. What the, who's going to win? Who's going to get paid well? Who's going to be the managers in these new factories? They want control above profits. So like Stalin, the CCP goes after oligarchs who start criticizing the CCP. People who start saying, oh, we need more democracy, suddenly get arrested. Oh, on corruption charges, which is exactly what Putin does and which is exactly what the new Saudi Arabian prince does as well. Why? Well, because they are corrupt. Let's be honest. They are all corrupt because it's a corrupted system. You get Uyghurs in concentration camps. The idea is to eliminate Islam and get rid of, slowly eliminate the non-Han part of China to make, to harmonize the demographics. Why? Because that threatens to break China up into pieces. You have war, quote-unquote, against Taiwan. Taiwan and, and mainland China are at war, have been since 1949. So, and they go after any country that recognizes Taiwan. So that Taiwan is not Taiwan. It is, it is Chinese Taipei in the Olympics. Um, there is foreign trade, foreign investment. The, the mainland Communist Party, the mainland China is going after those to try to isolate Taiwan. The problem with that is things like Taiwan is something like the fifth, sixth, seventh largest trading partner with the United States. Apple made it, makes a lot of its stuff there well back into the 80s. Um, most, uh, Silicon chips for the world's, not necessarily computers, but for other things, the Internet of Things, are made in Taiwan. And so this is a huge problem. But the idea is that Taiwan is a part of China. It is not separate. It is not a separate independent country. And anybody who says it is, is going to have problems doing business in and business with the Chinese economy. Hong Kong, Hong Kong system is supposed to be separate. And now you're getting violence, violent protests and violent counter reactions to that. Chinese people are getting wealthier. But there is no political change, which is the opposite of the Western experience. Why were Westerners so willing to let China into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, so willing to allow Western corporations to invest in China. And the idea was, as Chinese people get richer, they'll want more democracy. That hasn't happened. It's a complete opposite of what everybody, what all of history would have told you. And I have talked to some, some China political experts, and their argument is basically what I think. It's, it's We kind of all agree. And I'm not an expert in this. I'm just kind of going, well, China was poor. And now it's wealthy. 
And so you have an entire generation of people who remember being poor, who don't want to go back to being poor. And the Chinese Communist Party basically made an agreement. Don't we, you give up democracy. You leave us in charge. Which isn't a change. It's the same as it always was. And we will make you wealthier. We will give you a home. We will give you a job. We will get you out of poverty, which they did. And so you have an entire generation that remembers poverty. There's essentially nobody who remembers Chiang Kai-shek being in charge, who remembers the republic. So who cares about the republic? Who cares about democracy? It would be nice, sure. But you know what? Having food on the table is way more important. And so their thought is that democracy will come when that generation dies. Just like America will go through a major change when the boomers die. Because that generation, that World War II, post-World War II, the boomer generation of China is too big and it remembers too much about the past that they're too conservative. Just like the boomers have gotten too conservative. Their lives were good for so long, they don't want to change. And so you just have to wait for them to die. And sometime around 2050, you'll start to get real change. Maybe. Maybe. Is China a superpower? So this leaves us with a big question. This is kind of an additional uh, part. Is China a superpower? And the answer is no. Well, we'll see. No. China's not a first a superpower. First, the military. At the moment we're talking, they have two, maybe a third aircraft carrier. The United States has 20. They have foreign bases in only three countries versus 40 bases and 180 treaty nations for the United States. They have lots of troops, but no ability to project them. They have one-third the aircraft in the United States, one-fourth the helicopters. They're spending one-third what the USA spends in military power despite having more soldiers. So their price per, their cost per capita is much lower. Their entire system is closed to information sharing, detailed data analysis. No one really knows what's going on inside of China, even people inside of China. So you get the kind of rise of USSR criminology from the 30s to the 1980s. The idea that nobody really knows, and so you're reading tea leaves of what's going on, and there's all these power struggles going on, and who's rising and who's falling. And the idea is that there's different governmental systems competing with each other. You get wholesale corruption at the local level, if not at the national level, and you get all of these efficiencies. So the system looks like Nazi Germany circa 1938. On the surface, it looks like a success, but underneath it's all rotted. It's falling apart. President Xi looks powerful. He is powerful. But he's also on top of a structure that at the localist level is spending a billion dollars, a hundred million dollars to make a school that the walls are paper thin. The school really cost about a million dollars and that $99 million extra is going into people's pockets. And then you go, well, how do you know this? It's because when you have an earthquake and 20,000 people die because the buildings fell apart. Buildings that were built and, and certified by government officials that weren't up to code. 
Again, no, China's not a superpower. Why? Because of its culture. How many world-famous artists does it have? Basically, this Weiwei. And he's arrested and harassed. Most for, for criticizing the Chinese Communist Party. Many of the best Chinese artists live outside of China. This is very similar to Stalinist art. Movies, Hollywood is eight times bigger. Chinese movie exports, and this was a hard number to find, but exports, not the industry, not how much it makes, because how much it makes internally is as big as or bigger than, its revenue is as big as or bigger than Hollywood, but its exports are only $500 million. India and Nigeria produce far more movies. Book exports are tiny compared to English and French world. Scientific journals, none of international respectability because of the CCCP, the CCP censors, and even COVID, unable to create a vaccine with the same efficacy as the U.S. and U.K. Despite having a head start, despite having the origin of the disease within its borders, um, despite being 10 years prepared because of SARS and um, the previous COVID-related diseases. Their vaccines that they have produced are still not as good. As far as I know, I mean, the last, as, as I'm doing this, things are always changing. But in terms of, as far as I know, they're just not as good. What about soft power? Well, in soft power, nobody likes China except for North Korea. Which is kind of amazing that all the money China spends doesn't make friends. It's the opposite of the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was a chunk of money to Europe, and everybody loved Americans. Hey, you won. You defeated the Nazis, and now you're helping us rebuild. Americans then showed up and acted like jerks, but that's a whole different problem. But China is not buying friends. It's building ports. It's building roads in Africa. It's building railroads. That should buy it friends. And it's not. Infrastructure projects in Africa seem good, but use Chinese labor and connect Chinese industrial needs to ports. They don't help the locals necessarily. They see imperialism of the 19th century. They project power into the Pacific, which upsets South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, Indonesia, Australia, and the Philippines. India is a problem. Just a few months ago, there was a border clash in which guys beat each other to death in the Himalayas. Now, China has a better army at the moment. China is tougher. But, hey, India has nukes too. And a nuclear exchange between India and China will kill easily 100 million people, if not more. You have the cultural destruction of the Uyghurs and Tibetans, which looks bad in the Middle East, in the West, and in India. It doesn't make you any friends. I remember when the Beastie Boys were talking about free Tibet back in the 90s. It hasn't gotten better. Taiwan harassment looks bad. Hong Kong oppression looks terrible. No one believes the CCP on anything it says or President Xi at anything he says. So China could be rich and nobody cares. This makes China, essentially, in 2020, essentially Germany in 1900. It's big, it's strong, it's rich, and it's disliked or feared by most of the people around it. And it has more to gain by breaking the system than working within it.
That's dangerous. So Germany in 1900, given what our class discussed, that's dangerous. But <laughs> China is also a superpower. It's the world's largest army. It's the world's second largest economy. It's the world's largest manufacturing. And this is something you should know. The United States is the world's second largest manufacturer. For everyone who talks about American manufacturing is dead or gone or what, we're the second largest manufacturing country on earth. I said this to like my father-in-law and he's like, no, we're not. And I'm like, yeah, we are. He's like, how do you know? What, what, how, what's your proof? And I go, well, a $10 million jet engine is worth a lot more than t-shirts. And he's like, oh, well, that's kind of true. Think about cars that are made in the United States. We are the second. We talk about our manufacturing as if we should still be in 1958, where we were 60% of the world's manufacturing. We're only 5% of the population. We should be 5% of the manufacturing. We're bigger than that. We're what, 13 or to 15%. So the United States is a... Big manufacturing. Other countries wish they had our manufacturing. Let's put it that way. So, it, but we talk about it because boomers remember when it was richer. They got old and it's not as, as big as it was. And so it's this nostalgia for the way things used to be. But China is the world's largest manufacturing country. Even if a lot of those are partnerships with Western industries. They have 124 of the world Fortune 500 companies. That's more than 20%. Their economics is the largest producer and exporter in, in a ton of industries. You just look at st st anything from steel to just anything. They're the largest producer and or exporter. They have growth at 7 to 10% every year for 30 years. That's unheard of. That's the United States from 1860 to 1900. I mean, that's, that's 7 to 10% a year of growth for a billion people is unheard of for a mature economy. They should be at 3% a year. They're still, in 2020, the second largest economy, still growing at 7 to 10% a year. They're the largest population in the world, which makes them the largest economy uh, for consumers. Though the one child plus the age of the second world war generation means there are future issues. They are missing some 200 million women who should be in the, in the demographics, but were never born or never lived to adulthood. They're second largest economy. They are three times the size of Japan. They are 6.5 times the size of the UK. They are 60% of the United States, which is up from 10% of it in 1960. China has the second largest space industry, including landing vehicles on, on the moon. Their cyber war is the which is the war of the future is the second best after Russia, which means they could win wars without having to fight the nuclear mass holocaust. You shut off people's electrical grid. You turn off their energy supplies. And their universities are creating world-class technology and engineering programs, if not the humanities, if not poetry, if not literature, if not history. But their engineering and technology programs are becoming some of the best in the world. Soft power. China is willing to buy bankrupt Western brands and let them keep working as is. Volvo, 
London Cabs, GE Appliance, Weetabix in the UK. That's one of the big uh, cookie cracker biscuit makers. And Smithfield Meats in the United States, the largest producer of, say, bacon and pork products. Motorola. Who didn't have a Motorola? Well, you might not have had a Motorola Razor. I'm of a different generation. I had a Motorola Razor back in the day. But who's bought, who's bought a Motorola in the last, say, 10 years? But what that does is save jobs in the West, especially in manufacturing and farming. That buys goodwill. Those workers in Sweden continue to make high-end. The Volvo is not a Chinese car. It's still a Swedish car, despite being owned by a Chinese uh, conglomerate company. They're not, I, I don't know, at the very limited, uh, at the very local level, but they seem to be willing to buy these companies and then let them run. Um, even if they're losing money. China is building relationships in Africa where nobody else has any. Uh, foreign aid, military aid, disaster aid, and infrastructure. Uh, the United States, Europe basically pulled out after the uh, end of the Cold War and all only now getting back in. Uh, it is one of the, let's be honest, we've talked about it since the first day of my 101 class. It is one of the world's great civilizations. It's the world leader in renewable energy production, and it's 50% of the world's electric car vehicles. Chinese tourism is twice the size of USA, of American tourists. And American tourists are the biggest. They spend more, and yet Chinese tourism is even bigger. It's twice the size. The Chinese movie market is the second or third largest. It depends on how you, you count things. Remember... Nobody really knows what's going on in China in their in ec economics. The CCP keeps its numbers close to its chest, but the profits are important enough that they are basically Hollywood blockbusters break even in America and make their profits in China. So basically, um, Chinese uh, Hollywood movies are dependent on the Chinese market for their profits. China is willing to send covid vaccinations abroad. All right, they're not as good as Pfizer and Moderna with a 95% efficacy, but the Chinese government is willing to sell, send, I should say, or sell at a cheap price what they've got, even if it means less for their own people, which is something the United States wasn't willing to do. So Africa and the Middle East are the only vaccinations they could really get in large quantities are the Chinese ones. And maybe they're not as good as the American ones, but they're, something is better than nothing. So, yes, China in 2020, instead of looking like Germany, it looks like the United States in 1900. It's big. It's not really that strong. It has more to gain by using the system than by breaking it. The hope that people had in the 1990s. Which one will it be? Which one do you think it is? And that's the end of our chapter on this. So China's something, and we're going to have to deal with it. And uh, the rise of China is the great question of foreign policy of my lifetime, of well, my, my lifetime, my career since I've been teaching. And it changes every five years. It's a different place. It's a different relationship. So is it Germany in 1900 or the United States in 1900? We'll see. Be safe out there. Take care.